Greetings, friends, and welcome to Building Tradition, where we tell stories from builders, craftspeople, designers, and preservationists. I'm your host, Pete Miller. History informs the future, and so will our guests. Traditional Building Magazine has recently announced the annual Who's Who, 25 leaders who make a difference in our $170 billion market for historic restoration, renovation, and period construction. These 25 leaders are featured in the just published October 2023 issue of Traditional Building and highlighted on traditionalbuilding.com. These leaders are chosen for a variety of reasons, but what they all have in common is that they give back. They give back by volunteering their time to help educate their professional peers, their clients, and emerging professionals. They have also achieved a very high level of success in their careers, which sets a high standard example for the rest of us. No one is more deserving of his who's who 25 leaders recognition than my friend Stephen Payne of Payne Boucher Fine Builders, Boston, Massachusetts. Whether he is training the next generation of craftspeople or serving in a volunteer capacity to educate us on the classical tradition in building and design, Stephen Payne has been an impact player in our industry. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. Now, you started as a millwork craftsman right out of school. How did you come back by your interest in woodworking and in period millwork? In high school summers, I worked for um, a builder. So I got interested in tools and carpentry and craft in general. And then um, I had a truncated college career. Um, everyone was happy when I moved on. And um, I moved on to woodworking, where, where un, untrained, just sort of paying attention, and I built looms, realized that I was, that I was sort of wandering around in the dark. And um, I was living out in New Mexico at the time, and I came back to Boston and took a summer class in something called the Program in Artisanry at BU, which is, I think, a program that no longer exists. But at any rate, there was a guy from RISD, a professor from RISD named Tay Frid, who was teaching this summer class. And this was hand-cut dovetails and um, fine furniture and, and a real uh, artisanship. And so I, and I jumped in with both feet and, and I went to work at a hippie wood shop armed with my new hand-cut dovetail skills. And this was when the, the, there was a big boom in the Boston economy for gentrifying the South End and the Back Bay all these uh, Greek Revival and Beaux-Arts buildings that needed millwork. There were slightly older than me brothers who were running this um, wood shop and they had training. One had been at RISD and one had been an uh, MIT architecture undergrad. And I just paid attention. Um, and we would w work in these buildings and take stuff apart. And I'd see how they did it in the uh, mid 1900s and the golden rectangle and all that sort of stuff that does that's voodoo but it works it so anyway i just i just paid attention well how'd you go from being a millwork guy for these brothers to founding Payne boucher fine builders i got restless and i moved to california and 
built furniture and cabinets for movie stars for a couple of years. And, but anyway, I have my family, uh, there was a girlfriend involved in coming back to Boston. So here I ended up back in Boston and, uh, but I trailered back with me all this woodworking machinery from California, set up a wood shop and started producing restoration millwork for the, the boom that was still going on in, in the South End and the Back Bay. Uh, and my, my brother uh, and my other partner, Oliver, and I came to realize that we were doing work for general contractors who weren't paying as close attention as we were. And we decided to start running projects. And they went better when we were doing them than when we were doing them for them. And so that was the, and that was in the, I don't know, early eighties or something that we came to that realization. So many of your restoration renovation projects are in Boston, as discussed neighborhoods like South End, Back Bay, Beacon Hill, Cambridge. I mean, these are places with very strict historic rules and regulations. Are the rules reasonable? That's my first question. And if so, why or why not? And how do you manage them? And are your clients understanding of what can and cannot be done to a house in these neighborhoods? And how do you manage the communication between the client and the preservation rule makers? Well, for the most part, the rules make good sense. Um, there are there's occasionally ones that you that is a little hard to understand why they uh, why it's a rule and why it's enforced. And of course, there's some whimsy because these are volunteer boards for the most part of enthusiastic amateurs who may not get it exactly right. But on balance, the neighborhoods are beautiful because of these architectural boards. So we need them. We need that kind of oversight. Um, and my clients are moving to the Back Bay because the Back Bay is this wonderfully kept architectural gem. And now they move and they want, well, they want a little bit of an exception for themselves that, that I have to explain to them um, gently, but firmly, they don't get that exception. And there are, you know, and so the rules have are odd in some sense. Like if this, if the facade has been modified since it was originally built, then all of a sudden you can, the rules are much more relaxed. But it, so for example, here's a building that's built in the 1860s. And then um, Ogden Codman had a pass at it in the early 1900s and, and modified the rear facade. That means the rear facade is something that we can manipulate. We can put a garage portal in it or do something like that, which we wouldn't be allowed if it was the original 1865 rear facade. Standing on the sidelines, it's not clear that the rules are being applied with an even hand. But in fact, that this building that this building has an original rear facade and that this one doesn't, even though it was, you know, only 30 years after the thing was built, that it was modified. Those, that is why that building gets a, an exemption from the restrictions. I would imagine that if your client wants to live in the Back Bay or Beacon Hill, Cambridge, that they get it. But do you have situations where they just want the address and not the historicism? A little bit, but not not catastrophically. I mean, they we have clients who are perfectly willing to spend a lot of money to do an, a completely authentic restoration of a facade with brownstone that's that's quarried in Ohio to match brownstone that was originally from Nova Scotia. All sorts of elaborate stuff. But then they'll 
take umbrage at the fact that they've that the historic committee is requiring them to keep some ratty old magnolia tree in the front yard, for example. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Sounds like you have the right right kind of clients. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So talk to us about the intersection between historic preservation, or let's call it period-sensitive construction, and sustainable building practice. Where do they intersect and how do you navigate that? Well, um, renovating 19th century buildings is way more sustainable than building new. I mean, the the carbon footprint of renovation is much lower than than new construction. So there's the first thing. I mean, reuse. That's what we're doing. We're reusing. In order to do this in a responsible fashion, we have to take some care. I mean, what? So what would be your? Here's a beautiful uh, Greek revival, 19th century Greek revival with two over two windows, with relatively narrow mountains. Say, well. Okay, let's suppose that your historic district does not allow you to use simulated divided light glass. Well, that's that's I think that's a mistake. I think that that architectural commission should allow SDL because it is a way to maintain a authenticity or a reasonable authentic look while having um, some thermal benefit. The argument against that is that some very astute observer walking down the street can see that the that that one sheet of glass reflects light exactly the same way as it wouldn't if it was two separate pieces. I mean, it's so arcane that it's it's hard to fathom. And I suspect that that will change, that we will be allowed to use STL in all historic districts at some point. But one thing that we're doing is we'd like to save old sash. So if we walk in, if we go to look at a renovation and the client says, oh yeah, I want to replace all the windows. I say, well, don't replace all the windows. Let us, let us take your, let us take these windows apart, restore them. You've got storm windows anyway. Maybe your storm windows are ratty and we need to um, put new storm windows on it. And yes, we're going to have to make sure that the that the check rail of the storm window lines up with the check rail of your original sash. So it's not, um, unsightly from the inside. But then what we'll do is we'll fix the top sash and we will insulate the outside of the weight pocket so that the bottom sash goes up and down on weights like it was always intended to do. And weight works way better than any other balance system. Um, and then we've, and meanwhile, we've stopped the air infiltration that's coming in around the storm windows in the first place. That, that hollow weight cavity, the weight pockets are you know, so we're outside is separated from the inside by exterior casing and interior casing and no, nothing else. And so this, that's a way to get a really high impact um, thermal and anti-infiltration benefit and still end up with beautiful 19th century sash. Got it. That's a, a good example of that intersection I asked about. Now, I know you work with a lot of Architects, do you ever work without them? Uh, if we have to, we like working with architects. We have we, we have done some fairly significant Greek revival and Beaux Arts remodels absent an architect. Some you know clients who think that they don't need one and have their favorite interiors person, and they've done fifteen projects over that. Uh, we don't need no stinking architect, and so you know we will, which means that we will do whatever 
design work and interaction with historic committees has to happen. We can do that in-house and have, although it's, we prefer, we prefer working with smart architects. Do they bring you the work or do you bring them the work? About half and half. So back to the, the craftsmanship question, how do you train your craftspeople and where do you find them in the first place? Well, at this point, we, uh, we're a relatively big fish in a small pond in Boston. And so those, the young people come to us. I mean, we, we don't have a formal apprenticeship program, but we train them by working with the old guys. Um, and it works. And, and, and that's not just in the field, in the shop as well. We have people older than me. I'm 70. We got our purchasing agent is 88. You know, there's a lot that's been said about how uh, there isn't the next generation of craftspeople moving up. Do you? I would say that there's a risk of the, that that's the case. I mean, because what's happening is the kids are going to Votech. Maybe they are going into HVAC or plumbing or electric, but they're not going into carpentry for the most part. So, and if they are going into carpentry, they're going in with an eye on a union job of, you know, concrete forms and metal studs and so forth, and not so much the restoration carpentry that we are interested in. Do you hire out of uh, North Bennett Street School? We do. We have one of our alumni is a primary carpentry instructor there. And so he he carves off the pick of the litter and we get them. So um, that's that works well for us. But that's you know, that's a pretty small pool. But the larger question of, is there a future for, uh, for artisanship? Well, the answer to that is there has to be. You can't do it virtually and you can't outsource it. You need people on the shop floor and on the site fabricating and installing stuff. So do we have a sustainable model designed to keep that flow of young craftspeople coming along? I would say no. And on, as a society, we don't. I mean, we happen to be lucky in a, uh, the way we're positioned that we do get to have, we have young people coming up that are getting good. Well, and that's the good example I was talking about vis-a-vis you making a difference in our industry. You may not have a train, a formal apprentice training program, but you're teaching these guys and women, you know, on, on the job. So how's business? What do you see out there? How, how are clients behaving? Clients seem to be behaving as if this is a boom. The greater Boston area, there's a lot. There's a lot going on here. We are we're really busy, and um, and we're doing delightful stuff. Not I will say that in order to keep grist in the mill, we are also doing um, you know uber modern family compounds here and there. You know that kind of stuff. We we are yeah we've had to diversify. I mean we made the we made our name doing Greek revival and Beaux Arts work in Beacon Hill, Back Bay, and South End, and Avon Hill in Cambridge. And that's still the center mass of our enterprise. And we, it's fun. It's fun to do other stuff too. I mean, this is, my house is an old schoolhouse that was built um, in the 1860s, sometime around the Civil War, built as a schoolhouse. And it was never a house until my girlfriend and I bought it in 1990 and worked on it for a year and then moved in. Well, it's fitting that given that you're a good teacher and a good example that you would live in a schoolhouse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> any, any last words of advice to emerging professionals, young architects, builders, craftspeople who want to make 
the next who's who list traditional building? Well, okay, so pay pay attention to the Fibonacci sequence and golden rectangle. You can't go wrong. And then if you are an emerging professional, join the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art and get involved with those other emerging professionals that are there. Having a solid foundation in classical design can only help you no matter even if you go to the dark side and become a modernist, being well-grounded in classicism is going to be a benefit. The dark side. Yes, uh, classicism informs modernism the same way that classical music can inform jazz. It's about yeah. it's about the, the education. Well, thank you, Stephen Payne. I knew this would be fun, and it was. Uh, we appreciate you sharing, and congratulations on your... 25 who make a difference recognition in traditional building. No, I very much appreciate that too. Thank you. I'm Pete Miller, and you're listening to Building Tradition, brought to you by Traditional Building Magazine. Our Building Tradition podcast is produced by Anne White with technical assistance from Nate Gruca. Subscribe on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.